Welcome to the Mosaic Church Sermon Podcast. Mosaic Church seeks to engage the modern age with the historic Christian faith. If you don't have a home church, please don't use this podcast as a substitute for being a member of a local community of faith. Whether you call Mosaic your home or not, we hope that you find this sermon convicting and encouraging in your walk with Jesus. Here's our lead pastor, Pastor Greg Brown, with this week's sermon. When Ash and I travel in the car, which is what we did coming back from Florida, I actually flew there, but we traveled back in the car, uh, we like to have a solid audiobook kind of queued up for the trip, right? I think it's a good thing, because like, ultimately, it's really hard to read while you drive. You know what I mean? Like Some of you guys do it because you're sitting there texting on your phones, and you're driving, and you're swerving, and that's not a good thing. Don't do that. Um, that's endangering your life and the lives of others. Um, but we like to have a good audiobook lined up just to, to listen to something that might be interesting or helpful or, or otherwise entertaining. And uh, so we try to find something that lines up with both of our interests. Now, this is a little bit difficult because when I'm not reading theological books by old dead guys, I'm usually focused on management, applied philosophy, or biographies. I also enjoy a little bit of sci-fi and fantasy, but I haven't had as much time for that recently as I would like. Um, but Ash enjoys more eminently, eminently practical theological books. I like stuff that's kind of heady, makes you think, and it's like, it's more, uh, here are some core principles, and then you try to figure out how to apply, right? Ash loves that practical side of things. She's like, tell me what I can do today to live closer to Jesus. And those, those are helpful books, they're good books, but they're not the kind of, kind of books that I'm reading for, for my own personal leisure, if you will. Uh, it's just my personal preference. Um, but she also likes some mysteries. She likes uh, dystopian futures a little bit. Um, when those were popular maybe 10 plus years ago, she, I think she read all of them that came out uh, between like, uh, what is it? Yeah, Hunger Games and uh, Divergent and a bunch of other ones. Yeah, very, very interesting stuff. I actually read a few of those because they're close to sci-fi, right? Like, so I enjoyed those. But uh, she reads those. She likes a little bit of history as, as well, especially if, uh, she's, uh, if she gets something that has to do with the English monarchy. She's a big fan of the English monarchy. I, I don't know why. Um, I, we broke ties with them for a reason. Um, <laughs> are you a red coat in disguise? Okay. Anyway, uh, but we've had a few, we found a few places where our interests overlap. Uh, and those books have really been great so far. Um, one of those, uh, we, we listened to uh, The Magnolia Story by Chip and Joanna Gaines. Like, we watched their shows, things like that. And we, we enjoyed listening to that because like, we used to have a home blog, and, and so we, we enjoyed that together. Uh, but this last time on our way home uh, over the last couple of days, we listened to The Ride of a Lifetime by Bob Iger, who served as the CEO of the Walt Disney Company from 2005 to 2020 and is now serving in the same capacity again because his successor got summarily fired, <laughs> which is a crazy story in and of itself. But uh, whatever your thoughts are on Bob or Disney, he is admittedly an influential and successful figure in society today. Uh, and he, he's led all sorts of acquisitions, things like Pixar and Marvel and Lucasfilm during his tenure. And given that we'd just spent some time at Disney World, it seemed reasonable for us to, to look into what this guy has done and, and some of his thoughts on his life as uh, CEO of the Walt Disney Company. And one of the things that Mr. Iger uh, stressed through, throughout the book was integrity. 
on this, I think we could all agree. No matter whether you agree with Disney or, or Bob Iger on whatever positions, whatever else, I think we could all agree that integrity is important. It's a good characteristic to have. Integrity is a value that should be cherished universally. It means remaining true to your personal convictions. It's the idea that you are undivided between your thoughts and your actions. Your beliefs drive your actions and the two are in harmony. That's the idea. Duplicity is the opposite of integrity. And it's universally condemned, uh, except maybe in the law profession, traditionally speaking. But... uh, if any of you are lawyers, I'm not meaning to come down on you, I promise. But as I listened to the, this completely secular book that touted integrity, I started wondering what integrity meant to the author. I started thinking about how the world endorses in- integrity. The world sees integrity as a good thing. They hold it out there and they say, look, you should, be a, you should have character. You should, be, uh, you should have integrity. You should be in harmony between your thoughts and your actions. And yet, while the world on one hand endorses integrity, it then condemns the fruit of integrity in Christians. Very strange thing to me. You see, Christians believe that God is the source of truth and that he has given the Bible as the sole authoritative and inerrant expression of that truth. The fruit of integrity in the Christian is faithfulness to God's commands. If faith is in our hearts, then having integrity means that we are faithful to God in what we say and what we do. But the world tells us this is wrong. Satan, working in society at large, bids us first to become duplicitous. He wants you to sin by neglecting what God has commanded or doing what God has forbidden. He wants you to keep your faith in your heart and let your hands go through the motions, do whatever they want. He then wants you to feel bad about your actions not lining up with your beliefs so that you actually change your beliefs in order to feel better about yourself again. And that's just how it works, isn't it? You capitulate here or there. You sin a little here You feel bad about it, but you make excuses as to why it's understandable or why it's necessary. And then you start to construct a little list of exceptions that you take to God's clear commands. You say, I know it's wrong, but I don't have a choice. That's what I have to do. That's just how it is. Many, and perhaps most, sins are actually understandable. We're all sinners after all, aren't we? We understand what it means to be tempted and to fail. But no sin is permissible, even with the best of intentions. No sin should be accepted, no matter what your excuse. In this week's sermon in our stories series, we're going to spend some time looking at Daniel. And the kids are actually studying Daniel in their classes right now. So I figured this would be a nice way to link in. I apologize to Brittany uh, for jumping the gun a little bit. We're jumping forward in the story. Uh, But hopefully when they come back around to it, they're going to go, oh, Pastor Greg talked about that. One would hope. So we're actually going to be in uh, in chapter 6 of Daniel. Um, This is the story of Daniel and the lion's den. It should be relatively familiar if you've been around Christianity for any amount of time. Um, But don't make too many assumptions. Don't make too many assumptions. Um, I'll come back to that at some point later, perhaps. But 
rather than reading the entire passage, because it is a bit of a long passage like we normally do, um, I'm just going to take it in little by little. So that means that we won't be standing for the reading of God's word like we normally do before a sermon. So here's what I'm going to ask. I simply ask that as I read the scripture today, that you would receive it with gladness and thanksgiving as the inspired and inerrant word of God. Just receive it. And that's how I want you to prepare your hearts this morning to hear God's word. As a story, Daniel's encounter with the lions in Daniel 6 stands alone pretty well. I, I like that about this story. You don't need to know a ton about history in order to understand the story itself. You don't need to know a ton about even Daniel's backstory within the context of this book in order to really understand what's going on here. That said, the overarching theme of Daniel as a book want to put out there is God's faithfulness to his people and his sovereignty over all the powers and authorities of the earth. Does that make sense? That's sort of the overarching theme. And Daniel himself is shown to be sort of an ideal Israelite. So far as I can tell, no sins are ever mentioned in the book of Daniel that Daniel committed. If you read this book alone and you assumed that this was all that Daniel was, you might say he was sinless. That makes Daniel a really hard book to preach. Because you might come out with the conclusion that Daniel was perfect. Now I know from the rest of Scripture that Daniel was not perfect. All of us have fallen short. There is only one man who was perfect and is perfect, and that's Jesus Christ. So Daniel was a sinner just like the rest of us, and yet Daniel was held out as an example, as the, the paramount of an Israelite who remains faithful to God. And so his sins in the narrative context are minimized. They're not shown in order to provide this consistent narrative where Daniel is this ideal Israelite. In fact, Daniel looks a bit like Jesus. If you think about this story, even just this story in chapter 6, he looks a bit like Jesus, and I believe that was God's intention. I think he wants us to look back at Daniel and see Jesus more clearly. As we read the story today, I, I would ask all of you to consider how Jesus and Daniel sort of parallel one another. How the story of the lion's den parallels Jesus' life, death, crucifixion, and resurrection. And so with that in mind, let's just start at the beginning. I will read, uh, as I said, from the, the passage. I'm just not going to have you stand every time I do it. But we're going to read verses 1 through 4 first. It says this, It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three high officials, of whom Daniel was one, to whom this, these satraps would give an account, so the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful, and no error or fault was found in him. To this point in, in the, the narrative so far, Daniel has achieved an incredibly high position in the government of Babylon. History tells us that the Persians uh, took Babylon after Daniel had risen to power, just under the king, 
The Persians took Babylon by surprise and set up their own government. So while Darius the Mede is never mentioned outside of Scripture, the best guess here is that Darius is one and the same with Cyrus, who was the founder of the Persian Empire. That's the thought. So essentially what happened here is that Daniel rose to power just under the king. The king was assassinated. The Persians took Babylon by surprise. They, they took them by force. And they sort of let the government kind of remain in place, so it seemed, to, uh, to a certain extent. If you're interested about more of the history here, um, the Reformation Study Bible and the ESV Study Bible have really helpful notes. Feel free to dive in and uh, do a little bit of historical research. It's very interesting, uh, some of the conjecture about who exactly Darius was from a historical standpoint. Mind you, uh, simply because we don't have any historical record of Darius doesn't even necessarily mean he was one and the same with Cyrus. Perhaps history has missed him and the Bible is the only place he's recorded. Um, But all of that being said, kind of tangential to the point of this passage. Regardless, it it seems that although Belshazzar, uh, the Chaldean king of Babylon, who had uh, previously been there, had been assassinated, assassinated, like I said, the rest of the government officials under him seem to have been subsumed into a new Persian government of Babylon. Does that make sense? Kind of kept people in place other than the king. They just lopped the head off and then put a new one on, left the rest of the people there. And so now Darius has begun to attempt to reorganize his government. Right? This happens often when you see new leaders come into companies, right? You get a new leader into a company and they reorganize right? They start moving people around. They start trimming the fat. They cut people loose, things like that. And that's what Darius was trying to do uh, in, this, in this context. But Daniel maintained his high office in the new government. And he had risen to this previous position because of his character. And he maintained that character uh, throughout all of these transitions uh, and he continued to be seen as a, as, a, as a good and righteous man. He was a man of known integrity and known character. Obviously, this made him loved and respected in the eyes of some kings and rulers, but others hated and despised him. In life, I'm sure many of you have found that some will see value produced or in the, the fruit produced by uh, Christian faithfulness. Sometimes people go, man, I love the fact that you're so honest. Thank you for your honesty. You might be promoted for that. You might be regarded well by society for your love of others. As a Christian, you might be seen by others and, and they, they would say, oh man, like this person truly loves other people. Or you might be looked up to by your family and friends because of your hope and joy in Christ. They go, man, like, Look at how hopeful this person is. Man, you're just always joyful. Those are good fruits of Christian faithfulness. But at the same time, you're going to find, if you haven't already, that some people will hate you for the exact same reasons. Some people are going to hate you because you're honest, because you love other people. Some people are going to hate you because you're so hopeful and so joyful. And you're not alone. Daniel experienced the same thing, and so did Jesus. In light of this persecution, Jesus said in John 15, 20, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. He's saying, hey, this is not uncommon for the people of God. 
when you have integrity, when you have faith, and that works its way out into your actions and into your character, some people will love you and some people will hate you. And just like the Pharisees with Jesus, the hatred that the satraps and the high officials had for Daniel went above just general disdain, right? Because people can just sort of passively dislike you, can't they? I'm generally okay with that. I've said this before. Like, I'm, If you don't like me too much, that's okay. We can agree to disagree. I like me okay. Fine. But in this case, it went above this general disdain. They were like, I don't like this guy. It wasn't just that. It was, I want this guy dead. They wanted him gone. The problem was that Daniel's character was unassailable. They couldn't convict him of anything. They wanted him gone, but they wanted to do it legally quote-unquote, legally. He certainly wasn't perfect like Jesus was perfect, but he had such a good and, and righteous character and reputation that the satraps and the officials couldn't figure out any ground for complaint or fault against Daniel. And there's something to be said here, I think, about the character of the Christian. While none of us is perfect, we would do well not to disparage the name of Christ by allowing sin to become our practice. As a Christian, you might be called a hypocrite because uh, you still sin. Have you ever been called a hypocrite because you still sin? You will be. But you're not a hypocrite simply because you still sin. When you sin and repent, you're actually affirming what you preach. There's no hypocrisy. God calls sinners to receive forgiveness in Christ through repentance and faith and we believe wholeheartedly that we are sanctified progressively by the Holy Spirit. But you become a hypocrite when you make a practice of sinning. In doing so, you preach forgiveness for sin with your mouth and acceptance of sin with your actions. It's like telling everyone that they should bring an umbrella while you intentionally leave yours at home. With your mouth, you profess one thing. With your actions, you're saying something else. Perhaps more than that, as I've said, you bring a disparaging name to Jesus when you make a practice of sinning. Because people look at you and they say, that's what Jesus is like. It's a hard word. It's a hard word. But Daniel here is, is given to uh, the, well, he was originally given to the Hebrew people and now given to us shown in this light to remind us that faithfulness is a good thing that should be pursued, that we shouldn't bring disparagement on, on God because of our character, but we should walk in accordance with our faith. See, Daniel was not a hypocrite. He had integrity. His faith in God worked its way out into his actions that were consistent with that belief. Read with me in verses 5 through 9. It says, Then these men said that we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All of the high officials of the kingdom, and the prefects and the satraps and the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king would establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. 
Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. I have to admit this is a pretty ingenious plan to trap Daniel. The officials knew that the new king would want to establish his authority and unite his new kingdom under his rule. And so they suggested a plan that would allow the king to do just that. By suggesting that Darius make a decree that people should only offer prayers to him for 30 days, he could do three things. One, he could set them up as their high priest, an intermediary between the people and gods, and perhaps even achieve divine status in the eyes of the people. Second, he could unite his kingdom in a singular yet diverse religion with him at its center. And finally, he could remind his subjects of, his, of their dependence upon him as their sovereign ruler. As a king, there are less effective ways to unite your new kingdom than to, than to make people think you're a god, or at least close to it. Don't you know that that's true? I was talking to someone the other day that, that said that uh, they were having a conversation and the, the ultimate thing was, they were like, hey, this seems unwise, this decision you're making seemed unwise, and that person said, well, God told me to do it. It's a trump card, isn't it? Right? Like, it was obviously unwise, it was obviously, at least from all outward perspectives, not from God, and yet there they are saying, oh, God told me to do it. Right? The same kind of thing here, if Darius could establish him as himself as a God, then whatever he said, people were going to go, well, Darius told me to do it. And that was going to be the end of that argument. But Daniel had been left out of this discussion about this law. See, not all, they said all, verse 7, all the high officials of the kingdom. There were three. There were only two involved in this discussion. That's not all. Daniel got left out. Because he certainly would have stood against this particular injunction. Unfortunately, the king didn't see through the lie and he was hasty to sign it into law because he wanted to establish his rulership, his divine status even, over his subjects in this new kingdom. And so Daniel was drawn into conflict. Look at verses 10 through 13. It says, When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. And they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction that you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Daniel was a man of incredible integrity and understanding. He knew that the king had no right to outlaw prayer to God Most High. And he continued praying just as he always had. He made no changes. 
That's integrity, isn't it? That's character. I have to admit that that kind of character and integrity are something that I aspire to. I want that kind of character and integrity, the kind that stands fast in the face of, of all sorts of resistance, even certain death. Daniel just continued to pray, but he also continued to serve the king faithfully in all other areas. He just refused to cease praying as he always had. I think there's something to be said here about Daniel's moderate response to Darius's decree. He didn't create a rebellion. He didn't start trying to undermine the king's authority. He disobeyed the king's edict only so far as was necessary in order to continue worshiping God as he always had. Daniel was applying this principle that's clearly uh, propounded in Romans 13.1. It says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. See, Daniel understood that Darius's authority flowed from God to Darius. And that this authority did not extend to the point where he could overrule God. Darius had been given incredible amounts of authority as a sovereign king over the Persian Empire, over, uh, over Babylon in particular. He'd been given all sorts of authority. And Daniel seems to acknowledge here, because he continues to give this guy respect, that he has been set there by God. And yet in the one area where Darius has overstepped his authority... Then Daniel begins to resist, and he resists only that area. It's really easy these days, I think, to fly off the handle. For somebody in government to do something you don't like and therefore get on Twitter and try to create a war. But it seems to me that that Daniel understood what it meant to continue to serve the authority that was over him that was placed over him by God, and yet at the same time offer resistance to a decree that he knew to be unbiblical, unrighteous. He understood this structure. In fact, I would argue that when a government or any authority commands what God forbids or forbids what God commands, we must obey God. Can I get an amen? However, We must also recognize the legitimate authority that God has given those governments and structures. That's the hard part, moderation. For example, kids, you're here today. I want to tell you how you can disobey your parents. That sound good? (laughs) All right. I knew you'd say yes, especially that one. All right. If your parents tell you never to pray, you should continue to pray. God commands you to pray. He overrules your parents' authority. But if your parents tell you to eat your veggies, you eat your veggies. God gave them the authority to do that. They tell you to go to bed, you go to bed. He gave them the authority to do that. If they tell you you can't worship Jesus, you just keep worshiping Jesus. The same is true for all the rest of us. You're in an authority structure of any kind, whether that's government or that's a job or whatever else. You respect the God-given authority that's there, but when something is done that's unrighteous, you can't, that you can't participate in without sinning, 
And you have to resist. Find a new job. Stay at the job you're at and don't do that one thing but remain faithful in all other things. I don't know what the answer is in every circumstance. But I can tell you that integrity is necessary in these circumstances. I want to be clear that Daniel had weighed the cost and so should we. See, this whole trap wasn't a surprise to Daniel, was it? Look back at verse 10. It says, when Daniel knew that the document had been signed, <laughs> he, weighed the, he weighed the price that he might pay. He was thinking, how can I potentially, how can I deal with this? I'm sure he was agonized over this because he respected the king. He loved the king. He was trying to serve the king, and yet the king had done something that he knew to be ungodly. And so Daniel willingly and knowingly did something that he knew would be a death sentence to him while remaining fully faithful in all other areas to that king. Daniel's faithfulness, his obedience to God, would lead him to death, and he knew it. Look, any husband worth his salt in this room would die for his wife. Any good father would die for his children. But Daniel determined to risk death for the sake of obedience alone. I admit that I don't really know where Daniel's head was at in this moment. Was he thinking about the example that he might set for the Hebrews? Was he so confident in God's power to deliver him that he knew it wouldn't end like that? I don't know. But regardless of other factors, Daniel ultimately determined that he was willing to die for obedience to God. He understood what Jesus would say hundreds of years later. Matthew 10, 28. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both the soul and the body in hell. Daniel knew it was better to be condemned by man for faithfulness than to be condemned by God for faithlessness. And so Daniel made his choice. He determined that he would continue to pray just as he always had. That he would resist in one area. He would remain faithful to God in all areas. By remaining faithful to the king, except in that one place, except in that one place where the king had overstepped. Let's read on in our passage this morning, starting in verse 14. Then the king, when he had heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel. And he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men, men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet, and with the signet of his lord's so that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. Then at the break of day, 
the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? I feel like this part of this passage is poetic justice for King Darius, having thought that it was appropriate to set himself up as a god or high priest that people should pray to. While his edict made it seem as though he was the conduit through which the blessings of the gods would flow to his subjects, he was sadly mistaken. He was no god, meeting out blessings and curses wherever he pleased. He was a pawn. He was being used by his own officials to kill a man who had been faithful and honest to him his entire life. Or the entire time that they'd been together anyway. Admittedly, the king could have issued a counter-edict to nullify the first. Uh, You see when these uh, guys come back, they say uh, that Daniel pays no attention, and he says, and then in verse 15, they they say, Know, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. That was true. That was true. Once the king signed something into law, it was permanent. It was binding for all time, everywhere, perfectly. But... In the worst of circumstances, the king could issue a counter-edict. So they just sort of build on top of one another. You could say, well, now I repeal that, and that becomes another law on top of the existing law. Does that make some sense? He could have repealed it. But Darius is in in a bad position because repealing a law made it seem as though you were indecisive. Made it seem as though as a king you were not thinking clearly. And so he might lose face in front of his people and in front of all those government officials. And so he, he decided that that was not an appropriate course of action, given that Daniel, one man, could die and he could maintain authority over the rest of the kingdom. And he was like, I'm okay with that, even though it grieved him. It's a, a, this is one of those situations where uh, I said all, all, many sins, at least, are understandable. And you can understand the conflict that he was drawn into. He could face a rebellion. Millions of people could die. But he decided that Daniel was worth that price. So he sent Daniel off to the lion's den. And in the end... I mean, ultimately, like I said, he was trapped. But the king's comments are are worth drawing out. He says, verse 16 at the end there, may your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. I love this comment. Love it. Because Darius, this pagan king, as a final act of both kindness and desperation before Daniel's death, prays that God would deliver Daniel. And so Darius, finding himself powerless to do anything that would really rescue Daniel and still save the kingdom, he determined that his last recourse, his only hope at that point, was a prayer to God Most High. He prayed to the the same God to whom he had forbidden the people to pray. 
may your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. I think he did know what he was doing. Because he sealed the lion's den with his signet to prevent tampering. He didn't want anyone to get in there and, and get Daniel out by some other means. And so he sealed it with his signet. And then he went from there to his palace to do what? To fast. Typically he would have been, if he was unable to sleep, he would have been brought diversions. I'll let you determine what those might be, but your imagination is correct. Uh, food, all sorts of wonderful pleasures. He would, he would receive these things so that he could find rest. But that night, there was no rest to be found, and he refused it. I know I'm making a lot of side points here today, but I, want, I wonder if there was something we can learn from Darius in this moment. He may have been a pagan, but he certainly understood something about prayer and fasting and dependence on God. Maybe more than we do sometimes. It's a, it, this would be a weird sermon if I preached, be like Darius. That's not where I'm going. But in this case, in this one instance, Darius shows a type of faith that maybe sometimes we don't even have ourselves. Maybe it would be good for us to implement prayer and fasting as more regular parts of our lives. But after that uh, night of sleepless fasting, Darius did something that it was even more astonishing to me as I read the story again. He went out to the den of lions to check on Daniel. That's kind of crazy. Okay, I just want to paint the picture, all right? It's a hole in the ground filled with lions who are likely starved to make them extra hangry. Well, just extra hangry. <laughs> Hungry and hangry. That's what I was trying to go for, and I went for it. All right, you get the idea. They're going to be hangry. Hangry tiger, hangry lions, right? Scary stuff. Scary stuff. Let's be real. Practically speaking, there's really no chance anybody survives that. You get dumped in there, you're not coming out. But Darius has something in his head where he's like, maybe, just maybe, there is one chance that maybe Daniel is still alive, and that's this God came through for him, and I'm going to go check it out. <laughs> and so Darius goes out, and he's like, Daniel, are you okay? Did you survive? Did your God deliver you? Look, I, like, I, I don't think that, I think, I think that Darius was really hoping, praying, that God had delivered Daniel. I mean, like I said before, Darius wasn't hopeful in Daniel's ability to fight off the lions. He was hopeful that God had come and saved Daniel himself. Like I said, there's something to learn here from Darius. Stop acting like God can't or won't intervene on behalf of those whom he loves. We've seen this in Mel's life. Don't act like God can't intervene. Prayer is powerful. Pray to the God who does miracles. God is always faithful to his people, and whether he delivers them from death or through death, he always delivers them. Always. 
Read with me in verses 21 through 24. It says, Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me, because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no kind of harm was found on him, because he had trusted in his God. And the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions. They and their children and their wives, and before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. As if to throw a punctuation point on the fact that it wasn't just the lions weren't hungry that night. But look at verse 22. Daniel says, they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him. And then look at verse 23. And no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. See, Daniel wasn't perfect, but he was faithful. He trusted in God, and he walked in integrity with his faith. That kind of true faith, the sort of faith that changes you from the inside out, that works its way into consistency between your beliefs, your words, and your actions, that kind of faith has been God's means for saving sinners since the moment that Adam and Eve fell into sin. The word says that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as what? Righteousness. Daniel was found blameless not because Daniel was sinless, but because he believed God, he trusted him. Daniel was a good and upright man, but his faith was the means by which God saved him. Not only did Daniel's faith save him from the lions, it sparked such overwhelming joy in the king that he actually broke into song, which I love this, starting in verse 25. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell on all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. And then the, the verse begins, For he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall have no, uh, sorry, it shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth, and he who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus, the Persian. The pagan king of Babylon praised God in an edict sent out to everyone that he could possibly find. All of his people, in every language they could understand, he said, God is king. Because look, look he didn't just declare God's ability to save an individual. He said, God endures forever. He is the living God. His kingdom shall never come to an end. And this is what God's saving power does. It leaves people with no excuse not to worship. Ultimately, every knee will bow before him. If you know his saving power today, perhaps that's what you take away from this sermon. It's time to truly worship if a pagan king worships God at Daniel's salvation, how much more should we as Christians who have been saved by that same grace worship 
the God who saves us. Maybe that's what you take away today. But I think there's more. As I spent time at, uh, at Disney World with some of Ashley's side of the family, I, I found a, a short, pithy, and somewhat sarcastic way to describe our initial days at the park. Faced with the question, what did you do at Disney World? The answer is, I waited in lines, and I did a few things in between. You all know the pain. Waiting in line is painful. It's crowded, it's noisy. You generally have to be on your feet the whole time. Standing mostly still the entire time, making little progress, it's frustrating. Lines are awful, especially at theme parks, right? You're there to have fun, but all you do is end up standing around with a crowd of sweaty people. Not even any good music playing most of the time. During our time at Disney World, there was basically one thing I wanted to do the entire trip. All right? Everything else was optional, but I had to make it to the new Guardians of the Galaxy ride. Had to. All right, I'm a geek. What do you do, right? I got to see it. So early that morning that we were supposed to go to Epcot, uh, I woke up at 6.50 to make sure that I could get into the virtual queue right at 7 a.m. when it opened up. I mashed the button on my phone, starting at 6.59, of course, uh, and got a, got a boarding time finally. And I was all set, except nothing is quite that easy, is it? After spending part of the day doing all sorts of things, we saw that our boarding time had been moved up. So we were originally at like 5, 6 o'clock, got moved up to like 2.30, something like that. And we were like 2.15, I think it was. We were like, okay, let's head to the ride. We're going to get called in about 10 minutes. It's going to be great. 10 minutes. We decided, hey, like, easy enough. Just go sit down outside the ride, hang out for a little bit until they call our number. Easy enough. 10 minutes extended to 20 20 to 30. And eventually we waited outside the ride in the, the blistering Florida sun uh, for what it felt like somewhere close to an hour, just baking. You might notice that I am a little bit more colorful than average. That was one of the reasons. Finally, our group was called, and so we stood up, and what did we do? We walked to the line. So it's a virtual queue. So it's a line to get into the line, right? It's a virtual line to get into the real line. So we walked up to the line, which was already protruding from the building by a good distance, by the way. Then after an additional two hours of line standing, we finally boarded the ride for our three-minute, 20-second roller coaster experience. At some point, you'd think that maybe we would have lost the will to go on, huh? That there were times, I'll be honest, that I was thinking, like, maybe moving on and doing something else would be more sensible. But here's the thing. We had faith that the ride would be worth it. We endured the pain and discomfort because we believed in the promise. When the story we just read and the others in the book of Daniel were written, there was a singular purpose. It was to encourage the people of God to hold fast during the time of their exile in Babylon. It was a painful period of history. They had no homeland. They had nothing of their own. And they needed to know that God would be faithful to deliver them through it. They needed to be reminded that his promises were true. In fact, Daniel kind of functions like the, the middle part of the line in that ride. It's a little experience. You walk into a room and they do all sorts of crazy special effects. 
and it keeps you hopeful for the ride to come. Because otherwise, you just head to the exit and you go like, okay, I'm, I'm done with this. But they, they, they kind of encourage you in that moment to stick around because it's going to be good. So Daniel functions kind of like that. These people are in exile. And he, he goes, hey, but God delivered me. He can deliver you. Hold fast to hope. The people of God were struggling at that point to maintain their faith, and they needed to hear about Daniel's experience in order to be strengthened. This is no less true of us today. Do you struggle with faith? Be honest, with yourself at least. Are you just going through the motions sometimes? Do you have less faith than Darius, who at least thought it was a possibility that God might come through? I'll be honest, I, I struggle with faith sometimes. I read this passage and I was confessing to Brandon earlier that I was convicted by Daniel's faith. Look, if you, if you want to go to a church that has a pr- supposedly perfect pastor who pretends like he never struggles to trust God, you're at the wrong church. I think both of us can, can say we struggle at times. I struggle with faith. But if you struggle to believe, one of the things you need to know is that you're not alone. You need people around you who will hold up your arms when you're weary. And if, you, if you're that person, if you're, if you're saying, yeah, like I struggle sometimes and I need people around me who can encourage me when I do, and I'm willing to encourage them when they do, that, then you're at the right place. I admit this passage has been working on me as I wrote the sermon, and I want you to be convicted and encouraged by some of the things that God has been working in my own heart as I studied this passage. So when I I first read the story this week, I was amazed by this seemingly perfect faith. I couldn't find any fault by it. Just like the, the satraps and officials trying to find fault with Daniel's character. I tried to find fault in Daniel's faith because it would make me feel better about myself. I couldn't find it. Daniel seems to have perfect faith. I was crushed. I was crushed by Daniel's faith. If perfect faith is what God requires, then I am hopeless. Daniel's faith became a law to me. It crushed me under its weight. And it showed me all of my own deficiencies. Those areas where I struggle. Those places where I just, I question whether God's really going to come through or not. That was a good place to begin though. But it's not a good place to end. As I saw areas where my faith was, and I admit still is lacking, I was drawn to consider who God is from Darius's song at the end of the passage. God is living. He endures forever. His kingdom, that is his authority, is forever. He is my deliverer. He works miracles. He saved Daniel from the lions. Why can't he save me? And if that's who my God is, how can I do anything but trust him? How can I do anything but trust him? In areas where I've become complacent in my faith, I need to be reminded who my God is and what he's done. And so God in his infinite grace, back in the the times when this was written, he used Daniel's example and God's own character and faithfulness to preserve his people during their time of exile as 
as a means of grace, preserved them through it. The encouragement to trust God was a preserving grace to the people of God. They received this this story about Daniel's experience in the lion's den, and they could see the character of their God, and they were renewed in their faith. And likewise, today, I would like to give you the same encouragement. When your faith doesn't reach the heights of seeming perfection like Daniel's, seek to know God and His faithfulness. Look at how He preserved His people in the Scriptures, first and foremost. But also, think about throughout church history. If you don't know much church history, go look it up. Go read about the martyrs of the past. Go read about those who have escaped martyrdom because God decided in that moment that he would deliver them from death and not through death. But think about all of those who have been delivered both from and through death. How God preserved them in faith. How he kept them according to his sovereign will. Consider how perfectly faithful God is to those who trust him. Even when they are not perfectly faithful to him. But we can go a step further, can't we? We don't have to receive this like Israelites or Hebrew people in the Old Testament. We have a different lens we can look through. We can look at this from a New Testament perspective. We know that there is one true hope for people who struggle in their faith, who desire perfect faith and perfect integrity with that faith, but fail to attain that perfection. One hope. And that hope is the one who was persecuted by those who hated him, the one who was found guilty for his faithfulness, the one who was brought before a powerless ruler who sentenced him to death, the one who was delivered from death, and the one who is exalted above all others. His name is not Daniel, but it is Jesus Christ our Lord. He was not saved from the pain of death, but overcame death by being resurrected and raised to the right hand of God the Father, not over a temporary earthly kingdom, but over the eternal kingdom of God. In Him, we hope. Not in our own ability, not in our own perfect faithfulness, but in His perfect faithfulness. My message to you today is the same message as was to the exiles in Babylon. Hold fast to Christ. Hold fast. Where you are tempted in this world, where you're thinking, is it worth it? Hold fast. Trust him. What he promised is true. Fight to take God at his word. Trust in Jesus. Fight the good fight of faith. That's the fight to believe. And seek to live your life then in worship to the one who was perfectly faithful to his people. That one, Jesus Christ, is our true hope. Trust him today. Thanks for listening to the Mosaic Church Sermon Podcast. For more information about Mosaic, including location and service times, or to support us financially, visit our website at mosaicrva.com or find us on Instagram and Facebook at Mosaic Church RVA. Remember, it's not about us, it's all about Jesus.